Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. The financialization of Bitcoin is upon us with the imminent creation of a Bitcoin ETF. You might have heard that a Bitcoin ETF might start to be traded in the next few days. And that's the rumor anyway. And when it happens, you're going to see a lot of new money pouring into Bitcoin. Um, but even though I'm a big believer in Bitcoin, I wouldn't recommend buying a Bitcoin ETF. And the reason is not anything against the ETF itself. It might perform fine, but there's really no purpose to using an ETF when the asset is digital anyway, and you can just buy it directly. Buying Bitcoin and buying a Bitcoin ETF is a similar process. You go on a website and click around and set it up and get it done. So what's the purpose of doing it in a way where you have to rely on intermediaries and financial management and all kinds of opacity, opaqueness? Instead, just go and buy Bitcoin directly. And how to do that is quite simple. It's not a complicated process. It's actually probably even simpler than buying an ETF. You go to swanbitcoin.com slash init. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash init which is the affiliate link for this show. And you can set up automatic Bitcoin buys in less than five minutes where you can buy Bitcoin daily, weekly, monthly, whatever you want, set it and forget it. Buy small amounts, buy large amounts. You're going to get the lowest fees in the industry and you're going to get the freedom and autonomy that Bitcoin is great at providing in the sense that you can take your funds out anytime that you want. You withdraw them to your own wallet and they're yours, and nobody else is in control of them in any way, shape, or form. So go to swanbitcoin.com slash init and set up automatic Bitcoin buys in less than five minutes. And don't bother with all these Bitcoin financial products. There's no point. Smart Haptics is taking place this December 1st and 2nd in beautiful San Diego, and it's the Haptics Industries premier event and trade show. It's a technical conference focused on the commercialization of haptic technology. And the tagline this year is, the technology of tomorrow is buzzing today, the expanding world of haptics. The program is excellent, and it includes a lot of top-line speakers from companies that you've probably heard of if you're in the haptics field, like Tanvis, Microsoft, MMT, Lowfelt, Boreas Technologies, Ultraleap, Sensel, and many more. And it's a hybrid conference, so you can attend it in person in beautiful San Diego or participate using the conference organizer's fancy online system, which is actually super fun and easy to use. So go to smart-haptics.com and register with the discount code HAPTICS2021 in it. So it's a mouthful. It's HAPTICS, then the year 2021, and then in it, the name of this show, all one word, and get 10% off registration. Francois Cress is co-founder and CEO of Feelmore Labs, which makes Cove, a unique wearable device that has been designed to stimulate nerve endings associated with affective touch. Affective with an A, meaning emotional touch. Scientists discovered only a couple decades ago that we seem to have a specialized nervous system that is tuned to activate with social touch. In other words, these nerves light up with the movements and forces that arise when one person touches another. And the Cove device moves and vibrates in a way that simulates social touch, activating the parts of your brain associated with affective or emotional interaction. And it's theorized to confer some of the same benefits as social touch. 
It's a fascinating concept, and Fieldmore Labs has recently released some scientific research that describes how it works. Francois's background is unique in that he's a relative newcomer to the technology industry. He's not that much of a newcomer, but it is his second career, having already built a successful career in luxury brands. And it's exciting to hear someone who deeply understands the value of emotion and good design bringing his passion and expertise to the bleeding edge of brain-computer interfaces and wearable devices. We talk about Francois's upbringing in a scientific family, his unlikely and successful career in luxury, transitioning to the biomedical industry, and finally the story of Fieldmore Labs and the Cove device. So here we go, Francois Cress. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you again. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you? Very good, thank you. Yeah. So, uh, busy day for you today, or how's it going? Yeah, be busy week actually, but all all good, all good stuff. Anything exciting that you can talk about? Actually, it's more like extinguishing fires left and right, but uh, yeah, exciting, exciting <laughs> fires. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, thank you for taking the time today. Really appreciate you coming on. You have a very interesting technology and background that led to where you are today. And it's kind of amazingly in line with the original vision for this show at its conception, because I started out in haptics. The point of this show is to explore new applications of haptics in the tactile internet era. And you are like nailing that and in such a creative and interesting way. So I'm super excited to talk to you. So thanks so much for coming on. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So let's start with your background. You have an interesting history, a personal history. What brought you to where you are today? Yeah, I'm not sure my background really brought me to that, but at least it's a journey, right? And uh, I grew up in a family of psychiatrists and psychoanalysts and basically people very interested in the things of the mind or even dysfunctions of the mind. Very early on, I was obviously interested to understand what, why people do what they do and how it works up there. One thing leading to another at school, I was mostly drawn to hard sciences and I studied mathematics, theoretical physics for many years until I bifurcated, and I will explain why, to the world of luxury goods, kind of a, a 180 somewhat. But um, it was coincidentally to join a group which was forming at the time called LVMH that many people know, which is a leading luxury company in the world, carrying most of the brands you, uh, you know from you know Louis Vuitton, Celine, uh, Moët, uh, Chandon, Hennessy. Every luxury product basically belongs to this group today. Yeah. At the time, the world of luxury was much more I would say spread out and family owned with small craftsmanship based brands. Then that's when the aggregation started. And I was very interested again, because I think the luxury world is, is a bit of an irrational world, if you will, because people acquire luxury goods, not necessarily for their functionality, but for much deeper emotional affective reasons Yeah, and, and spend a lot of money on it. Then it's also interesting from a human standpoint to understand what, works and what doesn't and why there's no recipe hmm. it's a very interesting world because it's not just following the rules of basic marketing uh, it's actually there is an anti-marketing almost leading that interesting yeah yeah well you were saying there's no formula but i think you mentioned when we talked before that one of the ingredients to a luxury brand is a very long history it is true for most yeah it's interesting to think of it in terms of like value that isn't cheap to manufacture like 
time is not cheap. Time is the most expensive thing. And, and it's, you know, if something takes a hundred years to develop, you can't have instant gratification. So you almost have like a delaying of gratification embedded in the ethos of a brand and you build the value over time, over decades. That's, that's a really fascinating insight. And it's absolutely true both for the product building and the brand building. These most products in the field are still made by hand or even by Mother Earth. If you look at diamonds, mm. <laughs> although they are now artificial diamonds, but they are not as popular, obviously, because the time adds value in the sense that it's crafted in a slow and, and learned ways. And that's, that's the beauty of it. Although, obviously, the concept of luxury is shifting constantly and there is another luxury, but luxury is not price. It doesn't just mean it's expensive. Uh, it's not just also being rare necessarily because you have like really large luxury groups today and uh, you can find them at every corner, but they are still luxurious. Mm. And I think to your point, time plays a role also in the commercial development of these brands because the most successful ones never took any shortcut. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, they don't discount, they don't wholesale, they just control everything for some accessories brands. They would own the cows to the stores, you know, the whole chain of production. Then mm. I think it's interesting to see that the value of time that you pointed out is actually true to everything, not only the product building, but the commercialization and the strategy as a whole, because they could go faster sometimes, but they prefer to take their time to preserve the brand equity and last much longer. And that explains why these brands are still standing and huge. 200 years later for some of them. Yeah. From the psychology family, how did you wind up in the luxury world? Well, first of all, my family didn't really like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my parents were pure intellectuals and that was a little, you know, too flashy maybe. But uh, how did I end up? It's really coincidental. You know, I graduated from a very good uh, school in France where Bernard Arnault, the owner of LVMH, is also an alumni from that school. And he connected to me that way. I think he wanted to bring more straight minds in the world of luxury fashion, which sometimes can be very driven by creativity, but lacks a little bit of rigor. Mm-hmm. That's how I came to this world, which again was very interesting, very alluring, and at the same time needed a lot of structuring. And that's something I could before. Yeah. And family owned too. So just bringing some rigor into these businesses that are maybe a little bit too, I guess, introverted or. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes ego driven. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Family dynamics. Sometimes you're just the external, you know, person who trusts to manage the business. And there's a lot of diplomacy involved. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you have a psychoanalysis background. So you're talking to somebody and you're like, I'm feeling a transference. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. No, I'm sure it helped, you know, indirectly, I'm sure it helped. That's great. And you lived in Asia for a time, right? Yeah, I lived uh, eight years, like between uh, Thailand, in Hong Kong, Australia. I lived in Saipan, of all places, for people who know where it is, you know, small American island in the northern Mariana Islands near Guam, which is a huge, used to be a huge uh, Japanese tourist-driven, uh, duty-free business for luxury, Mm. then yes, I would say learned the trade with what was at the time the the largest market in the world, which was driven mostly by Japanese tourists, Mm. which were very hungry for European brands back then, which has now shifted more towards China. Yeah. The reason I asked you is because it reminded me of, I did a leadership seminar a long time ago, and one of the things that they talked about in developing kind of a broad perspective in leadership, they're like, if you can take the chance to live abroad, you should take it because 
It is so unbelievably mind-opening and and just makes you a better person, like a more well-rounded person. I'm curious what you think of that. Is that something that you found? Absolutely. I mean, 100%, not that everybody can or wants to do that, but again, I come from a provincial part of France, didn't speak any other language until very late because, you know, we all learn languages in school, but it doesn't really stick, right? Then uh, I didn't speak a word of English basically until my late 20s. It was for me, uh, first of all, it was a challenge just to be transported abroad, facing very different cultures. You know, I graduated from the best schools in my own country, very recognized, and I could have a very easy path evolving in the social fabric of France, which recognized those good old diplomas and go with it. I purposely, nobody forced me to really break this dynamic early on, just to reset a little bit the clock. I was managing mostly teams in those countries. I was usually the local CEO for those subsidiaries, totally local teams. And I was the only usually foreigners. And especially you get to Thailand, most of the staff didn't speak anything besides Thai. Then I had to learn rudimentary Thai to just communicate and build relationships. And it's a lot of work on top of your day work, but it's actually extremely precious later in life to adjust to the diversity of of the world in the end and all the things which are obviously much more spoken about these days. But I think that was uh, drinking of a uh, uh, fire hose early on mm. uh, and moving countries every two years, uh, like completely different culture every time, reset. I loved it. And I moved around with my young kids at the time and my entire family. And my kids grew up in that diverse environment and they are like so comfortable being citizens of the world today. Wow. Yeah, that's a great experience. That's really interesting. And then you started on American luxury brands, right? I actually always, for some reason, probably watching too many American movies as a kid back in France, always wanted to be in New York at some point. Mm. That was my dream. And after Asia, LVMH moved me to New York uh, and I asked for it. And I was then the CEO of Fendi, the Italian brand that they just acquired at the time for North and South America. And that's uh, when I, after working for other European companies here in New York, and I've been in New York ever since and over 20 years now, I started also moving to the American side of the business because as I grew within the industry, it was a natural move to run a global brand versus Mm -hmm. running subsidiaries. The job is slightly, is is more than slightly different because then you are in charge of building the brand, not only to selling it on foreign territories. Then by doing that, I tried to find what would be the equivalent of what I was doing for European brands here in America. And it's it's challenging. Again, it's a very different conception of luxury mm. or, or business. You know, it's obviously much more driven by the short-term pressure of the markets. Mm. There's some beautiful brands have been built. By the way, a good example is Tiffany was acquired by LVMH not long ago. And it's one of the last bastion of oh. American luxury is now French. Interesting. But I, I work for a couple of American brands as a global CEO. Uh, it was very interesting, but obviously a very different dynamic. Again, the tradition is not there, obviously, for obvious reasons, the younger country. Mm. It's a different dynamic. I'm just really curious. Could you break down a little bit more? Like, what is the difference in luxury between Europe, North America, and Asia? To start with the easy part, Asia didn't have traditionally luxury. I mean, Mm. there is no brand. Now they are starting to bubble up some China-born brands, which we don't know yet really at the global level. But Really, luxury was born in old Europe between mostly Italy and France, a little bit in the UK, a little bit in Spain, mm. and that's basically it. And that traveled around the world and became the huge business we know today. Americans, uh, you have obviously some jewelers, but you have 
big brands like Is It Luxury or Not, uh, Ralph Lauren, very visible brand, tremendous success, but tons of sub-brands. You know, usually what happens is those brands have grown through their runaway collection, but then develop tons of licensing mm. to go fast and to grow. And usually they are listed on the stock exchange and there's pressure from the shareholders. That would not happen with most European brands. The licensing is usually limited to very small category. I mean, small, not necessarily numbers, but uh, categories which can be licensed properly, which is usually fragrance, eyewear, uh, you know, watches, jewelry sometimes. Those categories which are definitely not in the core business of those brands and they can license it and license it with professional who can do that. When you go to American, you will find clothing, for instance, under six different brands within the same umbrella mm. and so most of them are being licensed and made in a maybe sometimes cheaper way to offer every price range under the sun and it dilutes the brand then yeah. we can't talk about luxury for an entire brand usually it's part is luxurious part is not if you can find it at a discount retailer it's not luxury even if it has a luxury label it's, it's a good point and that's really just like you said it's diluting the brand another thing that you said about european luxury that just triggered a thought was Eyewear, watches, and fragrances, those are all reliant on craftsmanship and technology in a way that like a, a logo on a shirt is not. I guess a part of it also is that textiles are so easy to produce now. Textiles used to be something that was luxurious because it required more expertise and craftsmanship in order to make a good textile or a good garment. And now it's almost like a solved problem in a way. You get a little bit of extra with that handcrafting, but not so much. But like with a watch, you're never going to have a luxury watch today made by robots or functioning digitally, right? So Yeah, absolutely true. And same for fragrance, you need a nose. Right. You still need the ingredients. You cannot make cheap fragrance. That's very true. And But in closing, still the differentiation, I would say, with the top, top brands is because they have those designers who are creative geniuses sure. and put out things that usually end up copied by the same people you are talking about <laughs> very quickly because there is very little IP and possible in this field. But they still have the prestige of that and uh, notion of tribe around a creator and all that stuff. But to your point, absolutely, uh, fashion is definitely much more approachable now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember as a child, we, we may have had two outfits. It was an event when you were going to buy clothes, right? Now, uh, my grandchildren, I have a couple of them, they have like more outfits than I ever had. I mean, <laughs> right. <that tells> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Okay, sorry, we're talking so much about luxury, but it's just interesting. And then you became a board member at a health tech company, and that was part of this transition to what you're doing today. Yes, when I was at the time running Prada for the US and South America, I was approached by Headhunter to join the board as an independent board member of a biotech company, which was called Kythera at the time, and which was series C or D of their financing rounds and was introducing a new molecule that you would inject in the chin to reduce the double chin Mm. over like one session or three sessions, depending on the seriousness or the size of the chin. The synthetized enzymes that you have in your system already to digest fat, then you are auto-digesting yourself. <laughs> not a pretty picture, but that's the way it was working. And all that was very interesting to me because it was part of the aesthetic world, obviously. It's to improve your appearance. There was no alternative on the market besides surgery at the time. At the time, Botox was already massive, meaning that it was well already understood that injection worked. And it was not a complete novelty in terms of the thought process. And the product worked. 
joining this board, I discovered a new world, the world of venture capital, because all these big projects are backed by venture capital, which barely exists in the luxury world, obviously, due to the length of the cycles. Yeah. Secondly, I met a lot of scientists, again, which reminded me of where I came from. You know, I spent years and years studying science, which I obviously didn't apply or even think about much during my tenure in luxury. Then all that was a breath of fresh air for me and a reminder that there was another world where technology could potentially meet everything I had been doing for the past 25 years. And maybe not luxury, but using the codes of luxury or you know, in the end, fashion, jewelry, it's all about appearance, right? That aspect of biotech was also about appearance. That was a very nice transition. Mm. But instead of adding an extra layer on you, we're like working on your existing layers. And it was already planting in my mind that you have a lot in yourself that we can impact before we even sell you extra. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure it was the same, roughly the same customer. And so you brought that understanding of the customer that's very interesting because even within luxury, I discovered having managed mostly fashion brands or accessory brands for like six years. I run Bulgari, Italian jewelers in the US, which is very expensive products, beautiful products, jewelry, watches. These people don't necessarily dress. And even within the luxury consumer, you would have people who put their money more on luxury, but really not on clothes. And they're not fashionable. They're mm-hmm. not interested in that. And you have the other kind who would spend anything on a pair of shoes, but don't really care about the what we call hard luxury. Huh. And same for plastic surgery or beauty or it's quite segmented. And it's not like across the board, if you're interested in clothes, you will necessarily do the whole shebang. You can be very whole in, in, in one of the segments only. Yes, there were commonalities in the thinking. I think my role as a board member there was mostly to help the scientists involved and even the CEOs, they all had the scientist background in healthcare or in pharmaceuticals to understand that. First of all, not everything can be quantified. I think there's a big belief still in the tech world that you can quantify everything. Mm-hmm. You can't, especially when you come to these aspects of more emotional, affective thinking and preferences, it becomes very hard to quantify. Absolutely. For them, it's unthinkable, you know. Right. <laughs> That's what my push. There's a, a great book called Design Driven Innovation, and this idea that a strong design vision you can't quantify the effects of good design in a way that a lot of people wish you could. And there are so many examples of good design that has been very lucrative in technology. One of the things I took away was if you're not a designer and you, you have trouble judging these things, it's more about identifying a person's track record and their vision and then sort of trusting them with that as opposed to evaluating what they're saying all the time for you know, what, what the, what the quantitative results going to be. I remember I worked in haptics for many years and that's also a very emotional thing, right? As you know, and we were talking about how haptics with entertainment and mobile phones could increase engagement. It was just a better design. When you touch a button on a mobile phone and you feel a haptic response, it's a better design because your intention was to create a virtual button. So if your intention is to create a virtual button, you might as well make it feel as close to a button as possible To me, that's like a very logical progression. And as a designer, I just try it. I recognize that that's a good design, but I got questions all the time, like specifically how many more units will we sell if we add this feature, right? So I like the struggle is real and I'm right there with you. And I'm very curious. So can you think back to any like strategies for how you dealt with that mismatch in expectations? I mean, obviously my track record gave me some credibility. Yeah. And that's important. You couldn't come just brand new and, and blindly saying, I think so. 
because obviously after the fact you can always explain a success or a failure you know mm -hmm. people are always very good at telling you i knew that because but before it's much harder and there is not always again a rational explanation of why are you going to put a haptic button here and there some people a great designer will tell you it's because i think it's the right thing to do let's try it and that's exactly what happens when a designer throws a beautiful collection on the runway, which will make the front page of all the magazines and will end up selling, even if it's a different version in stores. It's because they have a vision which may not be expressed in words or in steps or in stages of what people want. And here is what I am struggling every day with this generation of product people who are mostly software driven, who try to express absolutely everything that they do in terms of problem solution. Mm. Not everything is a problem solution driven design. Because yes, when you place a button on a screen, you can measure where the traffic... I mean, there are things which are obvious. Mm. If there was a problem solution that you're solving with fashion, there would be no fashion, right? Mm -hmm. Because many successes have been built that way. That's kind of a recipe which is applied and VCs obviously love that too because it's easy to put on a deck and, and sell a product. But it's not true for everything, especially when we get to the world of more, again, emotional and affective aspects of life, which are so complex, so noisy, involve all your senses. Yeah. You can't bring it down to one little problem solution box. Why is Apple looking the way it looks? Because it was a vision of a man. Yeah. Those products would have been done very differently, would have been probably much less successful ultimately. And he wanted them that way. Why? I don't think we can really explain every step of those design right. processes. Oh, you, it's so funny you bring that up because that's the next question I would get sometimes would be like, well, if this is so great, why hasn't Apple done it? Or why are, is Apple doing it like this? Shouldn't we do it like that? It was very much like, again, trusting the track record overall. I guess there's just a catch-22 because you need the trust of somebody in order to build the track record in the first place. And so it's just, a, it's a hard nut to crack. It's a hard mix. I had bosses in my life who were, only making a move if there was a benchmark. Mm. And if we couldn't benchmark something, we'd never do it. I think it's a mistake. Mm. I think benchmarking is important. Obviously, we have to learn from others, mostly mistakes. But not everything should be done that way. Otherwise, there would never be any proper or pure creativity. Yeah, The definition of creativity is not built on anything else but an impulse. Absolutely. Maybe there is a process in the back that nobody can express clearly, but some people are very good at it. Yeah, yeah. There's still room for that. In a world where we can measure so much, we should be careful of not imagining that there will be a place where the creativity has no space anymore. You know? Yeah, yeah. Wait, and what was the name of that company, the Double Chin Company? And it was... K-Y-T-H-E-R-A. Okay, and it exited somehow? How did it... How did it yeah, it was purchased uh, in 2015. It was purchased for $2.1 by Allergan, the maker of Botox. It was uh, pre-revenue, by the way, which is amazing. I also discovered a world where you can sell companies for billions when they haven't generated a single sale. <laughs> that was amazing. But again, I stayed in touch with uh, most of the board members there, which were mostly VCs. And one thing linear to another, like two years later, I was running the company, which I'm running now. It was a great transition to convince me to start looking much more closely at this new world while trying to find a, a connection in a project which could really uh, marry both both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, How did you get the idea for Fillmore Labs? To be absolutely honest, I didn't get the idea. The idea was brought to me. The project was started in an embryonic form back in, in Boston with people from the MIT, some from Harvard Medical School. We are looking at what happens when you vibrate on the skin. 
There is obviously a lot of scientific evidence and literature that the skin is rich in various receptors. Some of them are detecting motion or mechanical interaction, as it's called, and all that goes to the brain. What can we do with an external device? How can that impact the brain and what could be the benefits? And it was a very broad starting point, mostly looking for what's called the vagus nerve, Mm -hmm. which is this nerve which really connects most of your organs to your brain and vice versa, kind of makes this communication highway between both, which is known to regulate your parasympathetic-sympathetic balance, your homeostasis. And the vagus nerve is really the, the regulator of all that. And if you can modulate the vagus nerve, you can get a lot of benefits and avoid, you know, the overdrive, especially of fight and flight response. Mm -hmm. A lot of electrical neurostimulation is based on vagal stimulation by implanting electrodes on the nerves. And it's obviously not, again, a customer-friendly solution. A lot of people have tried externally to hit the vagus. Then that's what this small company was trying to do at Mm -hmm. the time. One of the investors was considering putting more money in it and wanted me to join to really make it something. And that's what, uh, when I joined, and for me, the potential I was seeing is that if there was something, and we didn't really know at the time, we knew that there was a wiring and there was probably something to do with that, but um, we needed to find the right vibration. We needed to find also a benefit, obviously, uh, by applying Mm -hmm. those vibrations. Long story short, a lot of research, a lot of reading of scientific papers, we targeted what's called affective touch, mm-hmm. social touch sometimes, but mostly affective touch, which is based on specific receptors in the skin called C-tactile afferent, which are very low threshold receptors sensitive to slow motion on the skin and very low pressure. Mm-hmm. And those, when they activate, they go to some parts of the brain and activate or modulate the insular cortex, which is kind of the center, the aggregator of your emotion and the signals you receive and basically leading to uh, a decrease uh, of stress. Mm-hmm. Long story short, we developed a, a proprietary vibration which activates those. Mm-hmm. And in turn, we can see, and we have, by the way, a paper, a scientific paper got published yesterday and peer-reviewed finally on the uh, brain imagery where we see through MRIs that we are activating the right parts of the brain mm-hmm. by doing that. Congrats, that's great. Yeah, that's, that's really important for us to be true to science as much as possible in a field which is obviously very noisy. Yeah. A claim like stress or anxiety, which is its, its clinical pendant, is extremely noisy. It's extremely broad. It's influenced by so many other factors that to pinpoint exactly that is very difficult. But we demonstrated everything we could with the current tools available uh, in the field. So actually, you apply vibrations behind the ears with a wearable, which is as flexible and as nice as possible, that you play 20 minutes at a time vibrates behind your ears on both sides. It's very gentle. It's extremely nice as a feeling, which adds, by the way, to the experience. And something happens behind the scene in your brain where you are releasing uh, the right biochemistry and we believe creating over time new connections between various parts of the brain to modulate anxiety and stress much more smoothly and spontaneously. Yeah, let me back up a little bit because I really want to lay out the case for why this is scientifically sound because like you said that's a really noisy space and so it's really easy to go like okay you're going to vibrate the skin and do some pseudoscience and there's a placebo effect great you've proven it Absolutely. this is not that so let's back up so vagus nerve this is a well-known thing it's usually because it's an invasive intervention people who get a vagus nerve stimulator are people who have extreme maybe psychotic depression right People for whom the risk for this intervention is worth, it's worthwhile because 
they have really poor outcomes if, if there's not an intervention. That's proven out, and it's even intuitive that it would work because nerves use electricity. So all you're doing is stimulating the nerve to do something that it wouldn't have done on its own. We may not understand exactly how that works yet, but you know there are patient outcomes. There are scientific studies at scale that show that that, that works. So then you're like, okay, well, when nerves fire because of tactile or mechanical stimulation, they also produce an electrical impulse. So that was a really great insight. You're like, okay, well, how do we do that non-invasively? That opens the market, that makes it less risky of an intervention, so it might have more use cases, et cetera, et cetera. That makes sense. So can you actually explain how did you go from vagus nerve to other... Pa- did you exhaust the vagus nerve, the possibilities for that? Like, what was the blocker there? That's uh, absolutely... I, I skipped that part, which is so important. Thank you for asking. We tried around this area. You know, We tried the neck, we tried behind the ear, we tried inside the ear, because, mm-hmm. uh, again, this branch of the vagus is supposed to go through the ear. We didn't see the signs which would show that we are impacting the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. And we didn't see an elevated HRV. We didn't see all you know the measurable aspects of that. And that's when we started doubting. It doesn't seem that the vagus is directly involved after all our testing. But people were, were reporting, I mean, depending on the waveform we're using, we're reporting like really less stress, some to feel feeling tired. I mean, there were signs that we are doing something but not necessarily consistent with the vagus nerve involvement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why we went back to the drawing board and read more and more literature and, and consulted with all our scientific advisors until we nailed this other pathway, which actually is much more reasonable. And, and I want just to go back for two seconds on the electrical things. And the external electrical neurostimulation exists. There are devices where you put wet sponges on your forehead, on your neck, and you send electrical current, usually alternative current, 100 hertz, 200 hertz, usually not dangerous, but still electricity. Nobody knows what happens next, you know. It goes in the skin. There is no receptor for electricity in the skin. Right. Uh, there are nerves. Then you just hope that the electricity will go somewhere, hit a nerve, and the nerve will do its job, which, as you said, we don't even understand really what happens. Even when we implant something on the nerve, we don't really know everything what happens next. <laughs> then that's a big bet, and we didn't like it. We didn't like also the usability. That's why we went mechanical. Mechanical is obviously much more friendly and much more humane, if you will. Mm. Then, uh, yeah. And because we like human technology, we looked at the skin and vibrating on the skin, obviously you interact first and foremost with the skin. You don't interact directly with nerve. You interact with the skin and inside the skin you have nerve endings. Mm-hmm. That's where the nerve ends. Sometimes these nerve endings have little corpuscles attached to them, which are specific, and those are in the tips of your fingers mostly. That's all the haptic business you know so well. And they are all specialized to detect different types of textures and details. You have that mostly in your fingertips, not really anywhere else. But there is a type which has been discovered in the 1990s, which is called the C-tactile afferent. Those are nerve endings, very ancient because they are attached to c fibers, meaning non-myelated fibers, mm-hmm. nerve fibers, meaning they are slow. The current goes much slower to the brain through mm-hmm. those than most of your nerves. Then they are probably evolutionarily have been there for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And those react mostly and very little measures have been done. It's hard to see what a nerve ending does, at least on animal studies and from all the literature out there. We didn't do any of that research. We're not equipped for that, but they react to a very slow motion less than five centimeters per second mm-hmm. and low pressure, less than half a Newton, which is very light, right. like feather-like almost. And that's it. 
And that's very consistent. That's why it's called affective touch. And there's a vector for affective touch, a carrier, because affective touch is typically a caress, a gentle caress. It's a grooming of an animal on another. Yeah. It's all these things which are slow and gentle. Yeah, it's incredible. First of all, it's incredible that there's a system that was just discovered recently. You think that anatomy is pretty much a solved problem, but this entire system for a type of touch was just discovered a few years ago. For the people who've never thought about that before, it, part of what you must do is have to communicate that whole story because it's totally mind-blowing and, and inspiring in a way. It's like an optimistic discovery. It's like, wow, we have we have a love system like that responds to kindness and love. And it's just very cool. It's obviously a fantastic narrative and it's true. Obviously it's speculated like many things, but moreover, even if we don't go all the way to affection or love, just the social aspect of it, which is pretty obvious. And I spoke to a researcher with the city African guy in the world. Hmm. He reminded us that on some monkeys, the density of the city afferents is actually higher in the back because that's a part that they cannot reach themselves. And that forces them to have someone groom them in the back. Oh. And that's creating more social bonding. And the whole social bonding, you know, forcing people to get together, we are also wired to create these opportunities or even force these opportunities, yeah. which I think was even beyond just the affective part. It's also just we are wired to force ourselves to be with other people. And the fact that it evolved to create more CT afferents on the back, I guess it kind of says what we can't do for ourselves, we evolve to bond with others to get those, exactly. those things done. And that's a really inspiring thought too, just even beyond grooming, like what other types of evolutionary phenomena are kind of playing with that concept? I'll have to think about that. That's really cool. And, and the implication for infants and kids, and it goes as far as thinking that when a baby in the mother's womb is also the only sense which is activated then is the sense of touch. Mm. So interoception, it's a related concept, but it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, and interoception is a, it's less grounded yet on, you know, science we can explain with mechanism of actions. Mm -hmm. But interoception is a concept which is, we constantly receive signals from our organs, but even more like from our inner world. And those signals go to the brain and the brain has to interpret them and act upon it accordingly. And a high interoception is when you really are very much in tune with your body, if you will. When your brain is clearly reading these signals, very simple example of interoception, I know I am hungry when my stomach is empty. And then people with low interoception may not necessarily figure that out or think they are still hungry when they shouldn't be, etc. Et mm -hmm. Then that's a very basic example. There are other people who have ability to know their heartbeat without even counting it, without touching it. That's good interoception. You know how your inside works. Mm we know that dysregulation of interoception is most likely a cause of a lot of mental issues and could be also in uh, eating disorders, misrepresentation of, of self, etc. Et interoception cannot be measured really as such with a hard biometric, but there are tests, there are questionnaires, there are things which can show that over time, our technologies and the CTFRNs are definitely linked to interoception. And by training them and training that part of the brain over time, because this part of the brain is also where you aggregate all the signals you receive from everywhere in your body, mm. uh, the insular cortex and what's around, like, you know, your limbic system. Then by training it, 
you get better at that. And if you get better at that, your brain will regulate your body better. So it's kind of two layers, because I always thought of interoception as a neural pathway. Like the hunger example is what I always used to think of too, where it's like you literally have neural pathways from, you know, I guess your stomach to your brain that are activated when you're hungry. But I think what you're saying is the more recent understanding of interoception is that there are higher order components to it, right? So there's like a cognitive component to interoception. Yes, I mean, originally it was very linked to organs. These basic things like hunger and now interoception is a bigger position involving much more emotional factors mm. and, and cognitive factors. It's a mix of potentially nerve communication with the brain, but also chemistry. A lot of chemistry travels through the body. And again, the NIH published recently a request for research on the subject because they see the potential of this concept, but the mechanisms are, are very little understood. Definitely the nervous system is very involved, but there's probably a lot of biochemistry involved too, even genetic, epigenetic aspects. It's a complex thing, but we like that as an idea, as a North Star for us to like improve interoception because we know that high interoception means a better life in general. Right, right. Yeah, so going back to CT afferent, so you have this device, you wear it around the back of your head. So we don't do video, so no one's going to be able to see what you showed, but it's kind of this device that's like a headband that uh, may be similar to a, a set of earphones, but it, it sits behind your ears, it vibrates, and it vibrates in a particular way that you've tuned to engage these CT afferents. So can you say a little bit about the vibration properties that you need to achieve in order to do that? Yeah, and, and not obviously disclosing all our secret sauce. But, <laughs> yes. uh, but the main thing is that the displacement of those vibrations has to be very, very little. It's like a feather touch. People, when they hear that thing, oh my God, it's going to hammer my head. Absolutely not. It's a very gentle, caress-like type of feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely gentle. For each individual, it's different. And there's a bit of a calibration there. The strength or the displacement or the intensity has been adjusted to the lowest level where you still feel them. Mm -hmm. That has been, at least in our studies, uh, shown as an optimal setting, which is also counterintuitive because, you know, most men especially would push it to the maximum. Turn it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turn it up. <laughs> and is that, that's uh, the opposite effect. It doesn't work if it's too, mm. too hard. You always bear in mind the affective touch aspect and uh, the most gentle caress you ever got. That's how it should feel. Mm. Then there is obviously a certain shape of those vibration and a certain pattern and a certain frequency again which can be determined but it's it's gentle and it's totally compatible in its delivery with the way those city apparents are believed to work mm -hmm. and believed to activate because they saturate also very quickly then if you keep firing them after a few seconds they would saturate and not deliver the message to the brain. We found also a way to reset them constantly during these 20 minutes. I see. It's not only activating them, but it's also resetting them. Interesting. And you said it has to be very, uh, very close to your threshold of perception. So I imagine that you can't really use it if you're moving a lot or very distracted or speaking loudly because you probably mask the sensation or does it still work? That's a very good question, which I think the jury is probably partially out. Okay. What we think from our studies that the feeling part is almost the icing on the cake. Really? Feeling is just to adjust. Yeah, because the feeling part uses a different type of nerve fiber. It uses your somatosensory cortex, and it's like your perception. When I do that and I feel that I'm doing that, that's not the same fibers. Hmm. But when I do the gentle thing, obviously I feel that someone is caressing me, but 
what happens through the CT afferents and those C fibers in my insular cortex is totally independent from the sensation. That's very important. That's two different pathways. And the conscious pathway of, oh, it feels good, which we like because obviously it adds to the benefits. It's better if it, if it feels bad, the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of the placebo, would kick in mm-hmm. and your ultimate benefit would probably not happen. That's not the active part of our technology. Mm-hmm. The active part is behind the scene. You don't feel it, uh, oh. which is kind of amazing. Then, yes, I often... Where it walking around, I even bike, you know, on city bikes in New York City with my crew on my ear. Then obviously I can feel the sensation. I don't even remember I'm wearing it sometimes, but I'm doing my sessions at time. And it seems that the repetition and the daily use is the most important part. Then as long as those vibrations hit your city afferents, you're getting the true benefit of Cove. Fascinating. You said you're doing EEG studies right now. Is that right? Yes, we did a lot of EEGs. Those EEGs were like the protocol was simple. We measured the EEG before, then we did a stimulation, EEG during, EEG after, just to show that after 10 minutes of a session, there were single sessions, you would see the alpha waves of the brain going up, mm-hmm. which is characteristic of what you would see in a successful meditation session when someone really knows how to meditate. That puts you in this very relaxed state, which mm-hmm. usually you reach sometimes before going to sleep, mm-hmm. where all the benefits of relaxation kick in. It's very consistent with the involvement of that part of the brain we are targeting, which was later confirmed by the MRI study, which is obviously a deeper way to look into it. That's amazing. Anything else about COVE you want to mention? No, listen, we, we are still discovering. We don't pretend we know everything. I think we are onto something extraordinary, a wearable which does something to you without you having to overthink it. Yeah. I think that's the future for me of wearables, and I hope that many other companies will come up with great ideas. Tons of great uh, trackers out there giving you more and more information about yourself and bringing new metrics to the world like HRV and all that, which are maybe overstated mm. uh, sometimes. When people believe that their entire health is represented by a single number delivered daily, it's a little scary. Yeah, That is great, though, to have tons of data. But we are coming in from a different angle, trying to give benefits to people without imposing to them to read dashboards and act upon them. But maybe jointly with the data world, we can end up having a very strong proposition for people not only to get the benefits but also realize they are getting them yeah what do you think the future of fillmore labs could turn into beyond cove i mean it sounds almost like you're building a technology stack that engages ct afferents is there anything that you can say today about how else that could be used the pipeline with the current technology is to move towards the cognition world with improving memory improving focus improving concentration really is close to what we already do, but it's actually could be involving another mechanism of actions, and we are looking into that. And then the idea is ultimately, I would love if we didn't even need a freestanding device to do that. There are plenty of great things you already put on your head, would that be a pair of glasses or wrist-worn device? Then I think we are also thinking for the future of either licensing the technology to people who already own some real estate on the body. Mm -hmm. I know that having a specific device for each function is going to go to saturation very quickly. You know, you need your your Apple Watch, you need your Whoop, you need your this, you need that, you need your ring, and every is giving you a different thing. Then it's too much, obviously. Now we are establishing the fact that it works. We have thousands of people actually loving it in the US exclusively for now. Then the idea is to 
first gain traction in the sense that affective touch is a thing recognized and instrumentalized. You know, we know we can deliver that. And after that, I think the sky is the limit. Yeah. And so what is your vision for the future generally for humanity and technology? And how does digital interoception play a role in that? Well, that's really uh, good. You know, I see even some of the very large companies we know trying to get more and more into your brain. For me, I want to draw the line to humane technology. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hack your brain. I don't want to ask your brain or your nervous system or your body to do anything they are not designed to. We are very happy to reignite, to reactivate a wiring which you have in, in you that you don't know about and which has been neglected for many reasons because of the modern world, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Then that is, I think, the proper use of technology mm. for the future of humanity. It's when a part of our own setup has been misused because of the way we live today, which was maybe not the original design then we can compensate that with technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to make you much smarter than you are supposed to be. I don't know if I can anyways. And, and you know, that's, that's the idea. That I think we don't want to hack the system. We want to just use it. Yeah, yeah. And well, where can we follow your work or Fieldmore Labs? We have a website. By the way, there's good scientific information there. It's feelcove, F-E-E-L-C-O-V-E.com, open 24-7. Thank you, Francois, for the time. And I'm really excited to see where this type of technology goes. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.